So we began Numbers chapter 6 last week, and we did the first four verses. Uh, And in particular, um, we talked about the importance of not being intoxicated, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And I took a, a lot of time to discuss all of the other things that people get intoxicated with in this world. Today, um, hopefully, we're going to take a much broader look at Numbers chapter 6 rather than just the first few uh, verses, and we'll also talk about a number of other areas regarding this. So I'm going to start right back at verse 1 and take a different approach uh, with this, and uh, we'll let the Scripture speak. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, Neither uh, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. So uh, the first element, I want to remind us again that uh, this says when either a man or woman, uh, the scripture will refer to mankind, and uh, that means men and women Both. So from the point forward when it says when either a man or a woman, every time it refers to he, it's referring to either the man or woman that might take this vow. Now, the thing I really want us to notice um, this morning in uh, this opening couple of verses is the statement, separate himself to the Lord, because a number of the things we look at, we, we think of as being more along the lines of separating ourselves from something. So like separating yourself from wine, separating yourself from, as he's going to describe, uh, the dead, uh, separating yourself from things. And that's the way a lot of people look at Christianity, it's a lot of uh, way that people look at faith in general is I can't do any of these things. I really want to or I used to and now I've had to separate myself from those things. That's not what the Lord is encouraging us to do. He's, he's much the rather saying, uh, come and be separated to me. Come and affix yourself to me. Join yourself to me. And, and therein is the fulfillment. Therein is the benefit. It, it isn't what you're losing in the process. It's what you're gaining in the process. It's, it's what the Lord is offering in the situation. Consider Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 28, begins by saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Uh, we talked about all of the other ways that people in our culture pursue intoxication. Uh, you know, when we were together last, uh, you have, you know, a lot of prescription drugs that are being administered. You have a lot of various ways that people are being intoxicated uh, through alcohol, through marijuana, through all the different sources in our culture. You know, leaving those things behind in order to affix yourself to the Lord is not a matter of loss. It's gain. You know, the, these things are a burden to us. They're a burden to our soul. Uh, the, the heavy laden that he talks about here, you know, the heart which is overwhelmed. $69 billion America spent last year on behavioral modification drugs, anti-anxiety, anti-depression, all of those different classes. You break that down, that's $31,000 a minute that America spent on behavioral modification drugs. This, this culture is, is desperate. It's anxious. It's depressed. And Christ is saying, if you'll come to me, you take up my burden, you take up my yoke, it's easy, it's gentle, it's light. James wrote in the book of James chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So very often, people will quote that with the idea that, uh, you know, you just resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The devil's not going to run away from you. You don't frighten him in the slightest. The thing that's going to give you the freedom from temptation, the freedom from attack, is in the drawing near to God. You have to, you have to, you know, separate yourself to the Lord. You draw near to God. You know, okay, then put in the effort, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But simply standing up, as a lot of preachers proclaim, like you're the one with the strength, you're the one with the defiance, you're the one that contend, can contend with the devil, is actually contrary to the scripture. In the book of Jude, uh, uh, Jesus' half-brother Jude warns us about the false teachers, and one of the things that Jude tells us is that false teachers will speak very boldly against spiritual forces. And then he says that Michael the archangel did not even dare to bring a reviling accusation against the devil, but instead said, the Lord will rebuke you. There's a respect in that setting, in that text, by Michael the archangel for the power of the devil. Hey, you can't on your own contend with him. You have to. You can contend with the devil, don't get me wrong, but it's in the drawing near to God that you're going to find that strength, that you're going to find that victory. You know, I help a lot of men, a lot of women with addiction. And so very often, a lot of what Christianity is trying to teach people is methods by which they can safeguard themselves against temptation. And in the end, you can only set up so many barriers. <clears throat> Eventually, you know, you've got an enemy that has been at this process for 6,000 years. 
tempting human beings, finding the back door, learning how to attack the chink in the armor. The place of safety is in the presence of the Lord. Now in regard to this drunkenness and the consumption of the wine and all of the things made from the grape, there is this statement in Ephesians chapter 5. We should be familiar with it. Begins in verse 18 and says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Now before I move on, there was that movement in Christianity years ago that some referred to as being drunk in the spirit. And I just want to be really clear about how false that was and how false it is to teach such a thing. Right? Drunkenness is a loss of self-control. In fact, the dissipation spoken of here is part of that. Losing control of your faculties. And, and that's what those false teachers encouraged Christians to do. Act like they were drunk. As though being filled with the Spirit was equal to being drunk. It's a false teaching. If you were part of that, I just want you to prayerfully consider what I'm saying. Now, on a couple of levels. The first thing is, it's always dangerous when Christians have an experience and then they try to make the Word of God conform to their experience. That, that's usually incorrect. The thing that will be right is when we know the Word of God and we make our experiences conform to the Word of God, not vice versa. So this idea of drunkenness you know, loss of self-control. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Greater and greater clarity is going to come as you're filled with the Spirit. So do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That, that's an overview, an image of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. As you draw near to God, these things are going to be, be part of your life and part of your existence. A knowledge of the Word, sharing the Word, speaking the Word to others, encouraging one another, submitting to one another, being concerned for one another. So prayerfully consider what the Lord would have us to do in sobriety by separating ourselves to him. Now in Numbers chapter 6, at verse 5 it continues, All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor, shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow. So the very appearance and grooming of this person will invoke conversation about their commitment to the Lord. You know, in our case, it would be modesty. 
in their case, you know, you think of the prophet Samuel, a Nazarite from his mother's womb, hey, never cutting his hair. Um, there is a process by which they could cut their hair periodically and, and offer it to the Lord, continuing in their vow, it would be burned to the Lord. The point is that they're going to have an appearance that causes people to take notice. And when they take notice, the explanation for their appearance is going to be that they've separated themselves to the Lord. I think that's very significant for believers today to understand <clears throat> the immodesty of our culture, the direction uh, that the world is going, and, and the church is always trying to look like and act like and be like the world. I, uh, I've had a couple examples of this, and they're, they're strong ones. Um, you know, modesty, so that there isn't a sensuality, there isn't you know, the appeal of the flesh in the appearance, that's that's definitely one part of it. You know, another example, I was uh, with a youth group years ago at a concert, and I was excited to see a particular band. And uh, as they took the stage, I was all done enjoying them because the lead singer's wearing a T-shirt for a band that I grew up listening to when I was not walking with the Lord. And I, I know that perhaps he's thinking of it as just like, you know, the cool 80s band, you know, sort of retro and classic rock and everybody's thinking that's a great thing. But literally, the songs they sing, if, if I walked up to your wife or your daughter and I started quoting the lyrics of that band to your wife or daughter, you'd be right legally to punch me right in the mouth. No, I don't just mean morally. I mean like literally the things I would be saying to your wife or daughter would be so criminal that it would be appropriate for you to deck me. And here's someone who's singing his heart out to the Lord who's simultaneously advertising for something completely contrary to the Lord. It needs to be that there's a consistency, even in our appearance, so that noticeably we're different than the world. That there's something about our appearance that would cause people to say, you know, what's, what's up with that? And upon explanation, you're able to tell people, this has to do with my relationship with the Lord. You know, this appearance that we have. There are a couple of passages to consider in this. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 28. Jesus speaking says, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God... So close the grass of the field, which today is, and <clears throat> tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not mo much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I know that especially younger people, and I'm not 
trying to insult anybody, but especially younger people, really get caught up in a lot of fashion. Really get caught up in having to have all of that trendy sort of thing. And, and I would say that as long as it's modest, you know, isn't provocative sexually in nature. And, and, and you know, if you think I'm pointing at the ladies, let me just pause and not so much today, a little bit, but not so much today. You know, there was a trend just a few years ago where <clears throat> all of the young men thought it was really cool to wear girls' clothes. I, 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 it was really strange to me. You know, and you're thinking like, why? You know, I mean, not, not, like, not like the transgenderism of what's going on today and that sin and another whole area of discussion, but like guys I knew going into girls' fashion and getting girls' shirts and, you know, like, one, it doesn't even fit you. And two, you know, what, what is your motivation behind this? It's definitely not Christ. It's definitely not the Lord. You're, you're not wearing it to bring attention to the Lord. So here we have this encouragement <clears throat> from the Lord to concentrate on our relationship with him. Here's a passage that is commonly applied to women, and, and it, it is, you know, from the scripture uh, pertaining to women, but it also applies to men. So I, I want you to hear what it says. First uh, Peter chapter three, verse three: Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible attractiveness of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I mean, we can go the other direction with this, right? Where men get so caught up in men's fashion, right? And you're thinking men's fashion, like Carhartt, you know? I got a Carhartt shirt on. I thought I'd bring that one up myself this morning, throw myself under the bus, right? But we can get so caught up <clears throat> with the outward that merely the outward appearance that we don't consider the more important things, you know, which is what Peter is saying. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible attractiveness of of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The child of God, changed internally, uh, who's living a life of repentance, a life that wakes up every day and literally puts itself on the cross in order to be selfless and to serve others. You know, that, that's going to be very different when the world sees that. Back in Numbers chapter 6, looking at verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. And if you're thinking, why would I want to? Well, he shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother or his brother or his sister when they die, <clears throat> because his separation to God is on his head all the days of his separation he shall be holy to the lord now this certainly was 
the ceremonial cleanliness of the Nazarite, but it does it does have application for us as New Testament believers. You know, this idea of you know someone dying. We're going to talk as we move forward in this passage about sin equaling death, and how Adam introduced sin into this world and thereby introduced death into this world, and how we're to stay away from the spiritually dead things, right? And Jesus has that conversation uh, with the young man who says, I want to follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Uh, Those who are in sin, let them take care of the ones who are in sin. Um, We often have a desire to be around people and associate and acquaint ourselves with people who don't know the Lord and who live very sinful lives. I'm not talking about going and trying to share the gospel with them and win them over. I'm talking about the attractiveness of sinfulness and the flesh and the way we want to be around certain people for the wrong reasons. And Uh, Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 34, again, Jesus speaking said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, before I move on, I hope that you'll take the time to really listen to what Jesus is saying, because a lot of people only think of Jesus as, you know, the baby in the manger on the Christmas card, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men sort of attitude, right? The verse was mistranslated. It is peace on earth to men of goodwill, okay? So those who are submitted to the Lord, they will find peace in God. Peace on earth of men to men of goodwill. Jesus is saying right here, didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. That was his mission in coming to this earth. Follow the rest of it, Matthew chapter 10, looking at verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If we have a priority in our life where we will compromise or destroy our relationship with the Lord in order to have a relationship with another human being, Jesus is saying we're not worthy of following him. Our greatest love and our greatest desire in life needs to be our relationship with the Lord. Certainly we're called to love the people of the world and the people of our own family and to minister to them. But when it comes to the place where we know they're going to defile us, you know, I'm going to get around them. They've got a bad attitude. They've always had a bad attitude. They use foul language. They start getting me cranked up. Next thing I know, I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm cussing. I'm swearing. I'm drinking. Look, if you know that that is going to stumble you, 
then that's a relationship that needs to be sacrificed to the Lord. You need to be done with that relationship if it's going to cause you to stumble into sin, if it's going to cause you to stumble in your relationship with the Lord. The Nazarite was to keep away from those that would defile him. Jesus gives us this example. A couple of things to discuss as we build this idea of sin equaling death or death equaling sin in uh, this illustration in Numbers chapter 6. The ultimate expression of sin is death. Death is the result of sin entering the world. When Adam sinned, he brought death into the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul said, Through one man, that is Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, pause the thought and let me chase a rabbit trail for just a moment here, right? you got to mind the gap at this point. A lot of people talk about the gap theory, and they want to insert evolution or millions of years into creation. Right? They take Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and 2, and they read it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void. That's how they read it. And what they say is that at this point in creation... Lucifer came to the earth and disrupted God's creation. And that's what resulted in all the dinosaurs having their horrible characteristics, which eventually led to the flood, which that wiped out. And, 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 I, and I don't mean the flood of Noah, the Luciferian flood. And that's what wiped out all of the dinosaurs. Okay, well, number one, dinosaurs were on the earth in Job's day, and they're recorded in Job chapter 41. We have both the Leviathan and the Behemoth that are very, very uh, detailed in their description in Job chapter 41. Uh, so dinosaurs were on the earth in biblical times, right? Secondly, death entered creation through Adam. There was no death in creation. And here's the thing. The way that that is written, that literally means all of creation, the entire universe. There was no death or decay in creation at all until Adam fell. So the law of entropy, that all things are breaking down, didn't even exist until Adam sinned. Adam brought death into the world through sin, brought death into creation through sin. If you've got a different theory, that's your business. And we can have long discussions about the science behind it. But I just want to be very clear that the Bible does not teach any gap theory. That, that's a fiction that has been created by men that don't want to believe the six literal days of creation described in the Bible. And they want to insert evolution in here somewhere in order that the world would accept them as being Christians and simultaneously being scientific. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're the most scientific person in the room. 
Because the gods you worshipped created science. The God you worship is the God of science. Everyone else that has a different theory, they're much less scientific. They're the ones that are flushing science right down the toilet and forgetting about the truth that is contained not only in the scripture, but in the world that is around us. So, I said it was a rabbit trail. Have I got your attention? Are we back here in Romans chapter 5? Sin entered the world with death. Back in Numbers chapter 6, looking at verse 9. It says, And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing, and on the seventh day he shall shave it. Now, look, if you're thinking, dies very suddenly behind me, how frequently does that happen? Well, I'll give you another idea. I I have had a handful of occasions where people come to this church, I share the gospel with them, they accept the Lord and pray and become a child of God. And I warn them in that moment, there's a high probability that you're going to leave here And before you can get back here for the next service, you're going to meet the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they almost always say, that's crazy. I've never met any of them. They don't come around my house. And I just said, remember that I warned you. And they show up the next week and they're all bug-eyed. Like, you won't believe what happened. Before I got home, I got cornered by two Mormons at the grocery store. Yeah, no, I believe it. I totally believe it. They are supernatural. They serve their master, the devil himself, who knows you've surrendered your life and become a child of God. And they're going to target you. Death may appear suddenly. In your environment where you never expected it. People do just keel over, right? My friend Joe D'Amico was here a couple of weeks ago up from New Jersey. He was at his brother-in-law's house. Brother's in the other room. Here's a big smash. Goes out in the kitchen. Joe's laying face down on the floor. Hearts stopped running. Joe now has pacemaker implanted inside his chest that, you know, not no, not even pacemaker, defibrillator. Implanted inside his chest so that if his heart stops, it will reactivate his heart. That's going to be a pleasant experience. But anyway, <clears throat> I don't even know if he can drive. That's driving on the road and have the defibrillator kick on. That's going to be quite an experience right there. Death comes suddenly. Uh, I've recommended a book before. I'll recommend it again to you right now. Note takers, you might want to write down the title On the Death of Saints and Sinners. Really interesting read. This is the one where I've described to you before the Roman senator who had just left a party with friends and someone took note of, well, look at that eagle over there as it comes up out of a pond with a small tortoise in its claws. He doesn't take notice and continues on in conversation. And like a lot of birds of prey, they'll take 
clams and other objects up very high and then drop them so that it'll smash the shell open so they can eat what's inside. And the eagle lets go of the tortoise and it nails the Roman senator in the head and kills him instantly. You don't know where you're going to die. You don't know who's going to die next to you, right? Spiritually, you may think you're in a good place, like church, and suddenly there's a person next to you saying things that could defile you spiritually. It's strange the way our enemy works and his influences affect. So it is here that we're seeing the Lord to encourage us to stay away from those opportunities where things happen. But if it does happen, right, then we have to reset our commitment. This person made a Nazarite vow, and that's been violated by someone dying right next to them. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall offer one as a sin offering. You might want to write down, did not know it. Missing the mark. Sin. The word literally means to miss the mark. Now, it is the idea that the King James scholars were familiar with, where archers would try to shoot an arrow through a hoop that was on the top of a pole. And if they missed the hoop, even if they struck the outside of it and it shook, if it didn't go through the middle, they would say, you've sinned. The idea is literally just missing the mark. You tried, but you didn't accomplish what you intended to. That's the idea of sin. Okay? So there are a few different classes here. Sin offering first for the things that you might have tried but you missed. In this occasion, someone died next to the Nazarite and ruined the vow that they had taken. And the other as a burnt offering. This is the idea of consecration. That when you give something to the Lord, they burn it in the fire. Many of the offerings that are given, a portion is burned to the Lord. And a portion is given to the priest. Others, a portion is given to the Lord in the fire. A portion to the priest that he would be sustained in the work that he does. And then a portion would go to the person who's making the offering. The idea is, conceptually, that everyone involved in the sacrifice is eating together. God consumes his through fire. The priest cooks his and eats it. The person who brought the offering eats their portion. It's the idea of sitting down at a meal together. You're in fellowship with the priest and with God. Here, the second offering completely burned the consecration to make atonement for him. One more time, the word atonement, just as it means, can be broken down into the three parts. at meant that the sacrifice you're giving makes you at one with God because he sinned in regard to the corpse and he shall sanctify his head that same day through the shaving of all of his hair and through the giving of the sacrifices. 
He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in the first year as a trespass offering. Now, trespass, <clears throat> you might think of it as going onto someone's land, you know, no trespassing. That's literally the connotation that's there. Clearly posted, you now have the knowledge that you're not supposed to do it, and yet you do it anyway. You walk right past the sign. Sin, you tried your best, but you missed the mark. So you could almost say no one could blame you. You put your best effort in, but still failed. Trespass is different. Trespass is looking at the post, the sign, the law, God's word, and saying, I want to do it anyway. That's an entirely different offering, and it's not an entirely different sacrifice. So, Notice that what's given for the sin, two really inexpensive birds. You can buy five of these at some point in history for a penny. So bring in your pigeons, bring in your turtle doves, make the offering for the sin. Something that you didn't intend to do. When it comes to the trespass offering, bring in the male lamb of the first year as a trespass offering. <clears throat> That's going to be costly, very costly to you. It's also going to have value lost that could have been in the future, right? You let a yearling lamb grow up to become a full-grown adult. You're going to be able to harvest the wool from that thing repeatedly, make money from it, and then slaughter the lamb uh, or, or the uh, you know the uh, sheep much later and have much more uh, money and weight in the meat that comes from that. You're going to offer this thing that is costly to acquire, and then you lose the investment that could have yielded to you in the future. So knowing what you've done, the trespass offering, much more costly in the sacrifice to be made. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Make no mistake. There is a massive loss involved in sin. You know, we, we do teach properly and we get the mindset that, you know, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That wholehearted picture of restoration. Sure, that's definitely uh, the mindset and the heart of God. But the scripture is also clear about, you know, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You know, what you sow, you will reap. You know, whether it's sin leading to death and corruption or obedience leading to righteousness, you have to pay the cost. Talk to people who have knowingly passed the warning signs over and over in their life that, that have continued on in habitual sin and then had to pay the cost later as they lose their family, lose their jobs, lose a great deal of the resources of their life. You'll find God's forgiveness the moment you ask for it, but there's still a very heavy cost to pay in sin also. The idea here is the Lord wants us to be very sensitive to how sin affects and sinful relationships affect our relationship with God. He, he wants us to get that sensitivity uh, in our lives and acquire that sensitivity 
in our lives. I, I always give the illustration in regard to sensitivity. I worked years ago as a line cook with this old pirate of a guy who just been in kitchens all of his life. And, you know, the first night I worked with him, we're getting ready on the line. He just, he, somebody said something about, are the potatoes ready? And he walks over to this big convection oven and he just rips the door open and reaches in and picks up a potato and puts it back on the shelf and says, no, about 10 more minutes. You know, any of you that have cooked, Think about a potato being in the oven for like 40 minutes, right? On 400. And think about just reaching in and grabbing a hold of that thing. And, and he's, he's feeling the texture of it, right? He gives, the, he gives it a little squeeze to see. Like, is it still soft? Like, you might stick a fork in it, right, to see. Like, does it give way? He just picks it up with his hand. No, puts it back down and shuts the door. He's lost the sensitivity on his hand, his big, thick calluses, right? This, this guy's worked in a kitchen and handled super hot food for decades. And he's lost the sensitivity. You know, my genteel little fingers were, you know, I just could not even handle that. It's crazy the degree to which some people lose the sensitivity to sin. You, you're, you're with them and they just wander right into the most vile things and you're like what are you doing oh yeah they I'm, I'm used to it is what they're saying needs to be that we would make a dedication and a commitment with our lives that would generate a sensitivity in us first corinthians chapter 15 verse 33 from the esv says do not be deceived bad company ruins good morals who you hang out with does matter. It does matter. Numbers chapter 6, verse 13. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in the first year without blemish, blemish as a sin offering one ram without blemish as a peace offering to make peace with god and be in fellowship with god and a basket of unleavened bread cakes of fine flour mixed with oil think like loaf of bread and unleavened wafers think pita bread thin wafers anointed with oil and their grain offering with the drink offerings. So some of us were delivered from horrible sin instantly. Others of us have taken a lifetime to find the freedom that we should have in Christ. I often hear both sides of that sort of arguing over which one is legitimate. And I just want to submit to you, both are legitimate. Right, and I need to really press the brothers and sisters who had instant delivery from sin. That's a beautiful thing. That's absolutely wonderful that that happens for certain people. The person who continues on and struggles and fails and falters, look, think of it this way. The Lord knows what it's going to take 
and what it's going to cost to bring that person to the place where they never want to go through that again. It's taken so much time and so much effort and so much failure and so much loss that when they finally find their freedom from it, you couldn't drag them back into it with a team of horses. There's no way. The conversion is no less legitimate, right? The thing we have to concentrate on in it is the cost. And, and where we discover that is actually, obviously, in the price that Jesus Christ paid, not in the price we've paid. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Some people instantaneously come to the understanding and the assessment of that cost. Others have to pay a huge price themselves. And then they finally come to the realization of the price that Jesus Christ paid, and they're all done paying the admission. At that point, you've got to let the Lord's cost be the one that covers all. 6.16 says, Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall offer the ram as a sacrifice and a peace offering to the Lord with the baskets of unleavened bread. Leaven, we're going to talk about being a symbol of sin. Uh, sin. The priest shall offer uh, its grain offering and its drink offering. They would pour wine out at the same time. Then the Nazarite shall shave his conse consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, shall take the hair of his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Now, if you're thinking about like hair burning and the stench that that creates, uh, that's not even going to be noticed for all of the other very fragrant odors that are being there. Think fresh baked bread, think freshly roasted meat, and the drowning out of the hair. All of that being intermingled, which is actually part of the picture, right? <clears throat> Your hair is the symbol of you and your commitment in that. Burn that alone, it's going to stink very bad. Incorporate the offering made that symbolizes a pure gift, no leaven involved, bread, and the meat roasted. And it's going to just smell like fresh baked bread and barbecue. That's going to have a very good and a very fragrant and a very appetizing odor to it. Uh, that's the beauty of Christ's sacrifice intermingled with our obedience to him. Our obedience, right? The prophet said all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's a useless thing in the greater picture. The greater gift is obviously what has been offered by the Lord. So, this idea of the leaven, I want to dwell on that for just a minute. In the meantime, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, when an innumerable multitude of people 
had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've spoken in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed from the housetops. The Lord wants our sacrifice and our offerings made to him to be without hypocrisy. Uh, the church is plagued with hypocrisy and hidden sin. It's startling to uh, see the realities of what we're discovering today in the church. Uh, the drug addiction in the church, the adultery in the church, uh, the pornography in the church, so many things in the church. The church needs to be purified. The church needs to repent. The church needs to leave behind the things that would defile all the sacrifices that we're making. You know, whatever we're giving to the Lord, if it's filled with hypocrisy, it becomes useless. Needs to have the purity that the Lord has called us to. Back to Numbers chapter 6, looking at verse 19. The priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened wafer, put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated head. The priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priests, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Now, if you're not familiar with wave offerings, it is to say that the portion that's brought in and offered that's going to go to the priest or going to go to the person who's giving the sacrifice is presented to the Lord. It's held up and it's displayed so that not only is the Lord aware of it, but the public is aware, right? That this has been brought in. It isn't that it's been brought in and then just given to the person. It's a matter of the Lord's getting his portion and the worshiper is getting their portion also so that as they sit and they eat of it, they have the mindset that God is blessed and he has consumed his portion in the fire as I sit here and consume my portion with my family and my friends. I'm being blessed as the Lord was blessed. Fellowship, consuming that together. Now that statement, after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. I want to make a sort of rabbit trail statement here. Right after the flood, we see Noah get drunk. It's a very shameful thing. He passes out naked. He's so drunk. His sons cover him up. One of his sons tells everybody that he found his father drunk and naked. It's a shameful thing. And it leaves the church wondering, what in the world happened? Noah was doing so good. Obeyed the Lord for all those years. As soon as he comes out of the ark... He gets drunk. There's a whole bunch of commentators that actually go as far as to say, well, <clears throat> of course he got drunk. Everything in the world is destroyed. The place is very depressing. Clearly Noah would want to get drunk. Things were bad before Noah got on the boat. And he didn't want to get drunk. One of the explanations 
inside that circumstance is that perhaps Noah didn't intend to get drunk. All life is suddenly shortened after the flood. They had great longevity, right? Adam and Eve lived almost a thousand years. We see lifespans of 600 years old. We see it dramatically shortened down to 120 years old and then almost immediately 65 years old. The law of entropy is taking over creation at a very rapid degree. It's quite possible that when Noah came out of the ark, he planted and harvested grapes just as they always had, but those grapes fermented much more rapidly than what he was used to. And as he consumed of it, he got drunk more rapidly than it would have been possible before the flood. Total speculation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make excuses for Noah. I'm not trying to give a scientific explanation for something I don't know about. What I'm saying is, we shouldn't look at occasions like that in the scripture and somehow think, oh, well, God's okay with me getting drunk. There's all kinds of condemnation of drinking throughout the scripture. All kinds. And it is almost definitely forbidden that we would get drunk. Forbidden. That as believers, we would get drunk. That's forbidden for us. So within this whole discussion, I want to leave you with this one verse in regard to drinking. Where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I'll say again, that's my personal commitment. I have no use for any of these things in my life. And that usefulness, the bigger part of the reason I do that is for your sake. To set an example, to encourage you that you don't need it in your life, that we're better off without it, and that the world is better off without us using it. And our message is much more clear when we don't. So prayerfully consider Let me go a little further in Numbers chapter 6, verse 21. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering of his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness what communion has light with darkness what accord has christ with belial literally the devil what part has a believer with an unbeliever and what agreement has the temple of god with idols for you are the temple of god and god has said i will dwell in them And walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them. And be separate. Says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will receive you. 
I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We're called to a separation to the Lord as believers, that he could bless our lives. couple more things. Stay with me. We're almost finished. Genesis chapter 3, Adam has sinned. God shows up in the garden, and Adam is hiding. Then the Lord God, Genesis 3 verse 9, called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10, he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. That's what sin does. It creates fear and paranoia, hiding. Christ wants to call us out of that. So very often, right, even in a church service like this, we hear the Lord calling to our heart, and it sounds like the voice of the arresting officer. Who's saying, Will, where are you? Adam, where are you? And that's not what it is. It's the broken heart of a father who's supposed to meet his child in the garden every day. And his child is gone. It's fear. It's the father that wants to know where the child is and to draw them in. That cost that Adam had to pay must have been horrifying to experience in the garden, in paradise, in pleasure, with his wife, suddenly in sin, God shows up, and the next thing that happens is he gets to watch an animal get slaughtered right in front of him because of his sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. It is my personal conviction that this is where animal sacrifice comes and the sacrifice of lambs. That it was a lamb. That's what I'm personally convinced of, that God killed a lamb and used its skin to clothe Adam and Eve. You think about that. If you've got a pet, because they didn't eat animals, And God shows up at your house and you've sinned. And he says, okay, you've sinned. But then he turns around to your dog. And he kills the dog and gives you clothing from that. Imagine, you guys, imagine the gravity of not only the death of that animal in front of your own eyes, but now you have to wear that animal's skin to cover your nakedness. We are clothed in Jesus Christ. A person died on your behalf and my behalf. We need to stop hiding in the sin and come forward because the price has been paid. The sacrifice has already been made. We need to step forward into the grace of God. And I love the fact, look, I know it's long, but I want you to notice this. I love the fact that this chapter ends with the blessing of the Lord. So many people know this blessing, but they don't understand it as being connected with the Nazarite vow. Follow here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Think about how positive a message that is. Right? This isn't God saying, I'm, I forewarned you, I've told you, and now you're getting thunder and lightning. That's what you're getting. What, what he's saying here is how much he loves us and how much he cares for us. I hope that we can be men and women that respond to the gracious call of the Lord. Verse 27, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. This is where the blessing comes from. In the Nazarite vow, and the fulfillment of the Nazarite vow, the Lord finishes it by putting his blessing on the people. I hope you can hear in your own heart what the Lord might be saying to you about separating yourself to the Lord in order that you could experience this kind of blessing in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you so much for your blessing for your graciousness, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts and minds about the things we need to hear from you. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your spirit that we could care for one another, that we could minister to one another. We're so grateful for your love and your graciousness in our lives. Lord, bless us as we spend the afternoon together, as we barbecue and play games, that we would be able to just enjoy one another's company. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.